Well, good morning. It's good to see you guys here. If you are new, we are really grateful you've joined us. We had kind of a a different week last week. It was a fun week. Uh, We have four grandkids. They live in Cleveland. And we brought two of them here. Well, my son met them at the border. Kind of test drive. They were here a couple of days. We just had a lot of fun. And and then we took them back on Thursday. Now, I, I learned, I think, three things about kids. First of all, how many of you are grandparents? Okay. How many of you have kids, either elementary or preschool? Raise your hand. All right. So a lot of you understand the first thing I'm going to say. Children are, are very busy. <laughs> yes. And uh, when we were over in Cleveland yesterday and they were riding their bikes around, it's like what I was looking for was like a some place to sit down, you know, like a chair or something. There's a second thing I've learned, that they all have different personalities. You know, they're all different. Let's see, um, the ages at seven, six, three, and less than one. Is that right, Cheryl? Okay, so all different personalities. Well, our three-year-old, um, how do I say it? She has lots of words, and uh, it's kind of like the radio being on all the time. You, you know that, that feel? I'm not kidding. <laughs> when I was, we'd sit down, she always sat to my right. It was nonstop talking. And you know, it's, it, at that age, you can understand some words, some words you can't. It's like, uh-huh, yes, I don't know what you're saying. I used up my words three hours ago, so I have no words left. Anyway, it was just a delight. We just love, love being with him. Well, today we finish up our series on Philippians. And what we have done, we put together a summary of all of the messages in a little booklet. When you leave today, you can pick one up on the uh, um, tables that are out there. So we've got one of those for you. In two weeks, we're beginning a new series on the book of Mark, one of the gospels. It's going to be a really cool study, so you might want to even begin reading that. Well, as we finish up today, one of the common themes, perhaps the number one common theme in all the book of Philippians, is this, is joy. 16 times the Apostle Paul used the word joy, rejoice, similar kind of words in the book of Philippians. So very common theme. And he he modeled it for us because he was in prison writing this book of Philippians, which was a letter that was to be sent to the church in Philippi. He was 1,200 kilometers away and he was in this dark, dank Roman cell when he's writing it. But he modeled joy. He also commended the church in Philippi because he'd started the church. He'd been there. Been a while since he'd been there. He commended them for a particular quality that actually helped fertilize the quality of joy. So to illustrate that, I've got this on the screen here. If you have flowers in your home, you probably have bought some of this before. It's shaking, shaking feed. You know how it works. You've got uh, a little top that pops off here. And a little slot right there. And what you do is you liberally sprinkle your fertilizer on your potted plants or outside. And there's some little, uh, little pins here that kind of direct it out so it spreads it out. Now, if I were to reach in here, because this is standard, you know, fertilizer, there's little, little grains. If I were to reach in here, let's see. And get one little tiny piece of fertilizer and use that to put in my flower pot, so that's flower pot, how much is that going to help? Not much. 
You want to liberally sprinkle the fertilizer on your flowers, your bushes, to bring about maximum effect. Well, he actually uses this idea here of fertilizing joy with a particular quality. And this was one of the ways that the Philippians helped fertilize joy, and that is generosity. In fact, he even commends them on their generosity. One of the reasons he wrote the book of Philippians was to thank them for their generosity. Because he was in a Roman cell, as I mentioned a moment ago, writing the book. If you were thrown into prison in that day and time, the government would not provide your food, your clothing, or your medical care. If those were to be provided, friends and family had to do that. So this church 1,200 kilometers away took up this collection, this offering, and they sent to Paphroditus and a couple of other people to deliver this to him so that he would have those needs taken care of them uh, in his life. So he commended them on that. In fact, the Apostle Paul talks about that kind of a giver in 2 Corinthians where he says, God loves a what? Cheerful giver. He loves it. There's this kind of special love that God has for that kind of a person. Now, putting this message together, I ran across the world's happiest giver, the world's most joyous giver. His name is Brother Franklin, and he goes to church somewhere in some Caribbean island. We have a little clip here of their offering and Brother Franklin. Watch this. That guy loves to give. You know, why don't we try that? What do you think? (laughs) Anyway, he sets us up for this message today. Here's the big idea. Big idea is this. You can fertilize a life of joy, which we all want to experience a life of joy, in four generosity-related ways. That's what we're going to look at. So we're going to be in Philippians 4, 10 through 21. If you want to turn your Bibles or your Bible app, do that. And let's stand, and I'm going to read that passage. Philippians 4, 10 through 21. Okay. So Paul obviously again wrote this. He says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need. I realize he's saying this as he's writing this letter in a jail cell. For I have learned to be what? Content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Yet... It was good of you to share in my trouble, speaking about this gift they took of this offering. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. That is again and again. Not that I'm looking for a gift, desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I receive from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering. 
an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs in accordance with the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Then kind of a final greeting in verse 21 and 22. 23, greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Okay, you can have a seat now. So let's unpack this passage here and see those four ways that we can actually fertilize joy that is through our generosity. I put my little top back on there. All right. Philippians 4.10. He says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that last you have renewed your concern for me. Did you have the concern, but you had no opportunity to show it. And this little word here, renewed, is um, the image of something we've already seen. It's the idea of this. To be renewed is like the idea of a plant that's been dormant for the season or a tree that now is coming into full bloom. You know, like I said a moment ago, all of us want a life of joy, don't we? We want a life of joy and energy and enthusiasm. When you meet somebody like that, what do they do to you? They refresh us. They refresh our soul. They exude this relational fragrance that lifts us up. That's exactly what this church did. This generosity, this fragrance of generosity lifted his spirit being in prison. But then he says, I have learned, it's a process, it takes time to be content whatever the circumstances. He says, I know what it is to be in need, which he was now. And I know what it is to have plenty. There were times when he had plenty. He was living pretty well. So the first one. Talking about fertilizing this life of joy with generosity. Here's the first thing. And the key word all starts, they all start with P. Okay, and I'll come back to that. I'm going to ask you to try to remember those. Okay, keep it right. Perspective about money, your resources. You know, unfortunately, a lot of people have this hidden or maybe not so hidden drive to get more. They're driven to get more. They work themselves to, to death. They're always trying to increase that salary, increase that income by overworking, super busy, thinking that if they can just reach this level of income, they will be happy. Well, some really smart people have studied that, and they call it something called this, called the hedonic treadmill. Now, hedonism is the philosophy that says joy comes from having stuff, having more stuff. Now, in our, uh, in our house, we have three little exercise machines. One of them is a treadmill. You know how a treadmill works. You push the button and you're walking. Okay, the hedonic treadmill is a person that thinks if I can just get to here, if I can just have this much, this much more, then I'll be happy. So they start running even harder and harder and harder. But how far do you get running on treadmill? You don't. You stay in the same place. So that hedonic treadmill idea is that this pursuit of happiness requires us to work harder and go for the gold and reach for it. And if I could just be up here. And what they found as they've studied lottery winners, you know, what's, what's the big lottery? The, the U.S. like $1.3 billion or something like that. I don't know if anybody's turning the, the ticket. What they found is this. They've studied the big winners. 
and many, many of the big winners. They've started them before, as they got their, their big windfall, then after, many have said, I wish I hadn't gotten that. Because actually their set point for happiness was here. There was that initial thrill. And of course, you know, when you get a windfall, it feels good. You know, I wouldn't go buy this, go do that. But you know what happens? If you're basing your happiness on just getting more, it drops back down to that baseline happiness. We may get a temporary bump, but it doesn't stay. Now, let me share a personal story with you. Uh, This affects us all, by the way. Now, obviously, there is a baseline. You know, poverty, you've got to bring people up from poverty to a baseline. But once you get there, the needs are met. That climbing the ladder does not give the happiness we think it will. Well, we have, we have three adult kids. And before Tiffany was born, uh, we had just a, like a two-door car. And now, understand, you, you younger people who have these really fancy, uh, lightweight car seats that don't weigh anything, back in those days, they weighed about 60,000 pounds. It took a neuroscientist to figure out how to lock it in and work it all. It was just crazy. You guys got it easy now. But anyway, so we would try to get those in, go through that, you know, back seat. Well, this is true. Somebody gave us one of these. Gave us one of these. This was the very first minivan. You know, those of you who have preschoolers, you know, like the minivan phase. Well, we were in the minivan phase and we got this. We were so excited because now the doors open, they slid open. It's easy to get the kids strapped in, all that kind of stuff. It was amazing, brand new, out of the blue. Man, we were so happy. I distinctly remember driving, I think on I-85 outside Atlanta, just driving along and I was, uh, we were, no, um, no, it wasn't, it was, it was in uh, Broken Air, Oklahoma, my first full-time job. Okay, so just driving along there, yeah, like this is so great. I looked to my right and I saw one of these. <laughs> this is Ford's version of a minivan. The Aerosar. So here I was in my brand new minivan, just mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. <laughs> boy. And I remember saying this to myself: I wish I had that one. <laughs> what was going on? That hedonic treadmill. I was enjoying what I had, but it really, really wasn't my, my happiness and settled down. And if I just had that one, I would really be happy. It happens to us all. Well, Paul, however, he experienced true joy, true contentment, true happiness, both in times of having a lot and not having much. In fact, the word he used here, uh, this word content is actually the word the Stoics used for contentment. A Stoic was a part of a philosophical group that basically denied emotions. And to be content was, was a force of the will. You just had to gut it out. You had to will being content. Well, the Apostle Paul says, hey, you know, I've learned something. And in fact, I've learned a secret. He was saying that basically there, this sufficiency to be able to be content is in another source, not just your will. And here's what he said. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. So he says the location now of true contentment contentment is in him. Who is him? It's Jesus. Jesus is the one that can only give you this true contentment. Well, and he called it a a secret. Now it has come, come to light. His secret was he had learned to accept his condition no matter what because Jesus empowered him to do that. And he gave, them, he gave him the ability to be content whether having a lot or little. Now, 
do everything. This does not mean, uh, let me ask you this first of all. How many are golfers in here? Any golfers? Okay. Is, is 70 like a good score? Okay. All right. So now you get a 70 when you get the, get the ball through the windmill. <laughs> no. I don't play golf. But when he says, I can do everything, I'm not going to be able to go out and play this guy right here and beat him with a 65. Because I, I can't even play golf. So he's not saying that. He's not saying that I can fly or you can fly. But here's what he is saying. D.A. Carson is a great theologian, really a, a deep writer. But he says this about this, I can do everything with these words. I'm going to put him up here and just follow along. He says, Paul's everything is constrained by the context. His point is that whatever the circumstances in which he finds himself, whether with the rich and the powerful or with the poor and the powerless, whether preaching with power to substantial crowds or incarcerated in a filthy prison, which he was, he has learned to cast himself on God and to be content. And the D.A. Carson then says this. He can do all these things. Here's the key. Everything that God assigns him to do through the one who gives him strength. Let the gospel advance. Let God's will be done in me and through me, Paul is saying. I am content for I can trust the one who invariably strengthens me to do what he assigns me. So you see the contrast there? It's not that we can do everything, but everything that God assigns us to do, including generosity, God will give us the ability to do it and be content in doing so. So we fertilize this life of joy by keeping the right perspective about money. And lack of contentment can stifle generosity. All right, here's the next one. When we view giving as a partnership with God to spread the gospel. Five times in the book, the Apostle Paul uses the word share. Here it is, verse 14. Yet it was good for you to share in my troubles. That's the idea of partnership sharing. Not one church shared with me in the matter of giving, receiving, except you only. So he actually does this seven times. Their financial support, their partnership with God made it possible for Paul to share the gospel, to encourage churches, and to build disciples. Now, I want you to think with me on something for a second. I'm going to ask you a question. Is God all-powerful? Yeah, most people would, would say, yeah, God is all-powerful. He can do anything he wants. Here's a second question. How does God get his money into circulation, into, into ministry? It's through you and me. If you're a follower of Jesus, the method he chose to get his resources into the world to share the gospel is through our releasing our resources, through tithing and giving and, and so forth. Now, since God is all-powerful and we agree that, that that's true, could he not have done it a different way to get his resources in there? Well, sure. He's, 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 he's all, all powerful. He could have designed the way he got his resources into the world. It's like established like the, the first national bank of Jerusalem and given every single church and missionary uh, and ministry a debit card. So, for example, Miss Kimberly, who is our incredible kids men and small groups uh, director, 
she could just take that card and when she needs to buy like, I don't know, 60,000 crayons for our kids to use during the year, she just goes to the store, zips that or taps that a debit card and boom, it's paid for. He could have done that, but he didn't. What God did, he chose a very unwieldy way because our giving is an opportunity. We show God we love him and we really embrace our purpose for being here. God chose the partnership plan. You and I are partners with God. He chose you and I to partner with him to spread the gospel through giving of our resources. And you know what? When we understand this and we really get it, it really makes this whole generosity thing much more weighty. And did you know one of the key evidences God is at work in your life is how you use your money? Spending it wisely, saving it wisely, and being generous. And by the way, let me just say this quick footnote. I'm going to come back to this in a minute. If you are a person with great means, you have great means, there's greater responsibility. Some of you have very little means, and you, you do what you can. But those with great means, there's greater responsibility. In fact, did you know that the very first European convert was a wealthy businesswoman? Yeah. Here it is in Acts. Lydia was her name. And she dealt in this purple cloth. It was a very um, expensive and desired purple cloth. And royalty bought it. And that's what she did. She ran this business, uh, developing this and selling this. And she also, oh, she opened her heart <coughs> to respond to Paul's message. And apparently she lived in a house big enough for the early church to meet there. So she was a wealthy businesswoman. I think she understood and got this whole thing of generosity. Well, here's what Jesus says to those who have great means. He says, for everyone who has been given much, look at the next phrase, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been trusted with much, much more will be asked. And this really speaks to an important principle where the knowledge comes responsibility. So now you know. If you have great means and you're kind of holding on to it instead of using your means to get the gospel out, maybe God's saying you need to loosen up because now you know and you have responsibility because you know. All right, so we fertilize the joy of life when we say this together with me. Keep a right perspective about money. Secondly, view giving as they say it with me, partnership with God to spread the gospel. Here's the third one. We fertilize the life of joy when we enjoy the pleasure that generosity brings. You may be thinking like, huh, that's kind of, that's not what I've heard before. When I was a kid, I often heard preachers say, you know, give until it hurts. Now, when I'm an adult, I think back over like, like, how motivational is that? Think about it, you know, hey, you give, it's gonna hurt. It's really gonna hurt. God is not anti-pleasure. God is not anti-enjoyment. Look what he says here. Now, this is really focused toward the wealthy, but here's what he says. He says, command those who are rich in this present world, and it's really probably most of us, not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain to put their hope in God. Oh, that makes sense. Skip to verse 18. It says, command them to, number one, do good. Number two, to be rich in good deeds. And number three, be generous and willing to share. Now, notice I left out a verse there, verse 17. Here's what verse 17 says. Who richly provides us with everything for our what? Say it together with me enjoyment. It's in the B-I-B-L-E. It is in the Bible. 
Generosity is not meant to stifle enjoyment, nor to hurt us. Now, it does mean we sacrifice sometimes, but it does not actually hurt us. Actually, God reciprocates by giving back to us. In fact, Paul said this. He says in verse 17, not that I'm looking for a gift, but I'm looking for what may be credited to whose account? Your account, the giver's account. So you see, Oh, and here's the, what one version says. I want you to receive the blessings that come from giving. Generosity gives us pleasure at several levels. Let me give you these three levels. The first one is future and eternal pleasure. And this is usually what we think of, you know, uh, invest now and in heaven we, we have a return. And that is true. Jesus said this, but store for yourselves treasures where? In heaven where moth and rust are not destroying, where thieves are not breaking and still. So when we give, where he says we're storing up future treasures, we won't see now, we'll see in the future in heaven and enjoy them forever. But there's another one, not only future and eternal pleasure, but present and physical pleasure. That is in this life. Now, we think sometimes that when we obey God and we're generous with our resources and we're sacrificial, it will mean less for me and less for my family that we somehow lose something in that transaction. But according to Paul, this does not happen. In fact, he says in verse 19, and my God will meet uh, some of your needs, uh, 60% of your needs, 80% of your needs. What does he say? Oh, I think that is like, let me do my math here. That's 100%. Yeah, 100% of your needs. He's saying that God will meet any material need created by your faithful and sacrificial giving. When you give and it creates a lack, a void, God says, I will fill that lack. I'm going to fill it up. Now, realize this is not true for everybody. It's not true for everybody. Who's he speaking to here? The generous Philippians. Those who had this pattern of generosity. He's, he's speaking to those who are showing generosity. He's not saying this to the person who's selfish. He's not saying this to the person who's a hoarder. He's not saying to this person who misuses their money. He's not saying this to the person who wastes their money. He's not saying to the person who won't give. He's saying to the generous. He says, you be generous. You follow my spirit's prompting. I'm going to meet any and every need created by that uh, spirit-acted, spirit-prompted act of obedience. So the key to having your needs met in the physical and present world is God-prompted generosity. Here's what he says in 2 Corinthians 9. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. But whoever sows generously will also reap generously. An amazing promise. Proverbs says this. He was kind to the poor lends to the Lord. And he, that is God, will reward him for what he has done. Now there's a qualifier here. This whole thing, here's a qualifier. God will meet our needs, not our greed. He'll meet our needs, not our greed. You see, guys, no gift ever made any man or woman the poor. Giving does not make you poor. Now, just a little side note here. Just want to tell you a little bit about how we do, how we manage your gifts, your money. 
I've never been in a church that has such good, good systems here. One of my roles as a pastor is to kind of keep the, the big picture of you of everything, which, which I do, including financially. But we have a finance team that every month gets reports and follows that. We have systems of checks and balances. I don't sign a check. I don't count the money. I just see the, see the reports. Uh, we have all these checks and balances. We have an annual audit. And our auditor this year, he said, so I just want to commend you. You guys are doing a, a fantastic job. If you have questions about how we uh, use the money that you give, the tithes and offerings you give, feel free to ask. But we have a really, really good system of managing well the resources you get. All right. So there's another side of pleasure that results from our giving. And here's where we get the clue from. A generous man will prosper. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. And what that means is, let me go back here. This physical pleasure idea, the word refresh comes from the idea of, you know, when it's been dry for a long time and it rains and everything just feels fresh. It's kind of that idea. God has actually wired our brains to enjoy generosity. Did you know that? God wired our brains. When we are generous, when we give, there's this feel-good neurotransmitter called dopamine that is released. And it actually physiologically feels good to give. So there's actually a sense of physical pleasure when we give. But there's the third one that perhaps is the most important. That is God's pleasure. When we're generous, it pleases God. In fact, Paul says, as they, that is this offering they took up, are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Now you have to go to the Old Testament to kind of understand this. In the Old Testament, they would offer sacrifices. And one of those sacrifices were animals, and they would cook the animals, and also they'd eat it afterwards. Have you ever cooked a steak outside? Or better, or even, well... Has your neighbor ever cooked a steak outside? You, you smell like, oh man, somebody's cooking a steak. It smells so good. Well, this is what would happen. When they would offer that sacrifice and that smell would rise up, it would, they would smell it. The people would smell it. And, oh, it just smelled so good. But it was a picture of the aroma coming up in the presence of God, how he was so pleased with their sacrifice. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying here. When we are generous, it pleases God. It's a fragrance that comes to him that just gives him great joy. All right. We fertilize the life of joy when we say it with me out loud. Keep a right perspective about money. Secondly, say it with me. View giving as a partnership with God to spread the gospel. Third one, enjoy the pleasure that generosity brings. And here's the fourth one. When you practice a consistent pattern of generosity. And they had this pattern. Look what it says here. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again. This wasn't just a spur of the moment. This wasn't a one and out. This wasn't a one-time thing. They'd shown this pattern of being generous to the, to the work of God. You've heard the phrase, practice makes perfect. That's actually not true. Because if you're practicing something that's not good, you're gonna, it's not going to be perfect. Actually, it's practice makes permanent. Matter of fact, when you practice giving, what's going to happen is it's going to become just second nature. The more you practice it, it becomes second nature. I used to play tennis. Don't play anymore. But there were some key principles. Any tennis players in here? There's one. 
There's one there, okay. Well, you guys understand this. Well, our tennis coach, I was on a team in our neighborhood. There are a couple of things you would do. When you would serve, you would step forward two or three steps and you would split step. That was one thing. You prepared yourself to receive the ball. Also, when you were returning a serve and you have your racket, there's a certain way. Before the ball hit the racket, you squeeze slightly, whether it's forehand or a backhand. And he had us practicing split step after split step after split step and forehand, backhand, forehand, backhand. Why? Because we were developing muscle memory. As we practiced it over and over, it became second nature. Guess what happens? When you begin to give and you make it a pattern, it just can become second nature. It's just going to be something you do as part of your Christian life. So how do we fertilize our joy, our faith? Well, we do it through generosity. And those four P's, let's review. Say them out loud with me one more time. Say, number one, say it with me. Keep a right perspective about money. More of it's not necessarily going to make you any happier. Number two, say it with me. View giving as a partnership with God to spread the gospel. We're working with him. Number three, say it out loud with me. Enjoy the pleasure that giving brings at multiple levels. The fourth one is, say it with me, practice a consistent pattern of giving. Now, I'm going to give you a challenge. I talked about a steak a while ago. I'm going to give you what I call the steak challenge. I'm going to explain to you first, then I'm going to tell you a story. Here is the steak challenge. My challenge is take a fresh step of faith in your giving between now and January 1st. Look at how you give, evaluate it, and take a fresh step of faith. And come early January, if you take that step and it does not bless you, you feel like that was the wrong move, I should not have done that, you let me know, I'll take you out for a steak dinner. Okay? Now, let me tell you a story. Several years ago when I was in the um, Atlanta, yeah, Atlanta area, we started a church there, I issued the steak challenge to the church then. Same thing I say to you, you know, period of time after that time. If it wasn't something you should have done, I'll take you out to steak dinner. Well, years later, when I was at a different church, I got this little note in the mail. A small note. And I remembered it was from a guy at this previous church many years earlier. I opened it up and he shared, you know, Charles, don't know if you remember or not, but you issued the steak challenge. And this was like years ago. I hardly remember the guy. He said, well, I took up the challenge. I began tithing, began giving regularly. And you know, God has really blessed. It's been such a joyful, joyful thing. I've forgotten about him. I've actually forgotten about the steak challenge. Inside the little thank you note was a gift card to a steak restaurant. <laughs> Go figure. Now, I'm not saying that so that you'll give me a steak. <laughs> Please, that's not the purpose of this. The purpose is that here's the guy. They began to experience the joy of generosity. And he, out of his joy, he bless me a little bit. That's what happens when you experience the joy of generosity. You're just going to be blessing people right and left, here and there. It's going to be part of your life. It's going to be very, very joy-filled. So that's my challenge, a stake challenge. Take a step of faith. And that could be different for different people. You may have never tied before. Maybe that's for you. Like, it's kind of scared giving 10% really yet. It may be giving on a regular basis. It may be giving a large gift. Whatever it is for you, what it looks like for you, consider taking that challenge. And I really mean it. Come January, if I feel like, Charles, I shouldn't have done that, I'll take you out to a steak dinner. And steak dinner is not McDonald's, but real steak, okay? Just so you're wondering, I'm not going to weasel out of it. Okay, so let me pray for us now. 
Father, thank you that we can, that we can laugh and uh, enjoy our uh, the funny stuff in life and little funny stories. And Lord, sometimes when we talk about money, it can uh, be icky feeling for some people because the reality is there are some, uh, throughout history, uh, pastors, ministers, preachers who have taken people and misused their money. And I realize that's kind of in the backdrop for, for many of us. Lord, I thank you that we have good leaders here and our financial leaders and our board who gets reports and monitors how we spend. We, we, I believe we really honor you with our giving and with our spending and how we manage uh, your, your resources. And Lord, I pray for every believer here this morning that they would truly consider the challenge, the stake challenge. It's the stake thing, is not the issue. But just to begin to experience the truth of your word that says you, you love a cheerful giver. You notice when we give with generosity. You take joy in that. And you also give us great joy when we're generous. Pray that West Park will continue to be more and more so a generous church. May that be one of the, 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 one of the parts of our DNA that influences all that we are and all that we do. And just as a final part of this prayer, the ultimate generosity God has shown to us is sending his beloved son, Jesus, who died on the cross for your sins and my sins, and who rose from the dead and will return one day to make all things right. If you've never come to faith in Jesus, Jesus says, return from your sins, come to me, place your faith in me, and I will forgive you and I'll give you a new life. So if you've never come to faith in Jesus right now, you can just simply tell him something like this in your heart. Dear God, I admit that I've sinned. I turn from my sins. I place my faith in Jesus. I want to become a follower of Jesus and have my sins forgiven. So I pray that would be the desire of your heart this morning if you don't know Jesus. So Father, take these words that we've looked at from your word. May you be, may your spirit uh, prick our hearts, remind us to live a life of generosity. We pray this in your name. Amen.